misses. Brock isn't dead. It's just sleuthing. With your host, Willie Whitebread, and Mark Audio Slave Stewart. to another episode of Rock Isn't Dead. It's just sleeping with the audio slave and Willie Whitebread. Ha! Oh, yes. That was <laughs> just beautiful, right? I love it. I love well, it. welcome back, guys, to another episode of Rock Isn't Dead. It's just sleeping. And we're going to continue on with where we left off last week with the 70s, 80s punk rock movement. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Oh. That's what we did last week. Oh, that we're continuing yeah, on. we're continuing we're on through the decades. Into, the times, the, into. into a period known as oh, the, the dirty grunge word. I period. It. I hate that word. Oh. And so does everybody from Seattle and everybody in that music You're scene so ever. grungy, those guys in Seattle. Well, that's, that's another thing. That's another thing like what we talked about last week. They... The, the media in the in the music industry is going to take a good thing and and turn it into something profitable That's, monetized yes yeah well right you know they they had a nice little quiet you know following in the northwest portion of well, our, quiet our country was, but they did have at first it was it was a very quiet uprising right in, you know out of their city they, they were doing things differently than the mm-hmm. rest of the country at the, at the time. And then uh, you know they just blew up, blew. Oh yeah, up. well this is this was your this was your teenage years, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like mm-hmm. imagine you uh, you know the exact moment in time when you heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit" for the first time, right? Oh man, well it was still back in the MTV era as well. The so MTV. So we were you know watching the videos and you know, 120 minutes was on and you know we had. Uh, you know, Headbangers Ball was still going oh, strong. And I forget what that guy's name was, the um, the show host of that, but I watched... Wasn't it Matt Pinfield? I don't know. Maybe. I don't think it was. I watched... Or no, Ricky Rackham. Ricky Rackham sounds, yeah. sounds yeah, more familiar. That was him. That sounds more familiar. Yeah, Matt Pinfield, I think, was 120 Minutes, yeah. which was like the alternative, like, R.E.M. type, type music yeah. show. Well, anyway... we used to wait for that song to come on the radio. I'm sure. Before the CD came out. We were all like, oh, man, they're going to play it again. It's going to be number one again. You know, tonight it's going to be number one again. And and sure enough. How long did that last? How long did it stay number one? Oh, God. (laughs) Months. Oh, sure. You know, it was probably like a good four or five months. Really? Yeah, that Teen Spirit was. That long? It was a very, very popular song at at the time. Oh, my God. Well, it's kind of leading in because I remember last episode I talked a little bit about how I feel like punk rock kind of went underground for a number of years and you you know you weren't really hearing anything super heavy right. or anything like that because you had the the hair bands emerging the scorpions the white snakes the you know poison the all, the, Michael all the glam rock and glam rock twisted sister stuff which where did it start the new york dolls of right? course yeah the new york dolls so kind of like punk kind of like transformed itself yeah. a little bit into, yeah. into that era well it's also like i was going back to the media stuff it's it's the word grunge kind of evolved from like what what happens with every single music genre that surfaces that nobody knows what to call it yet. It starts as new wave mm-hmm. until they come up with 
some super clever word or some super clever label to to monopolize it. Right. You right. know, and so, so we it, have to think of something. This we can't just call it alternative because there's too many other alternatives. Right. right going on right right now. Right. New wave because that's what that's what Zeppelin was. That's what Floyd was. That's what punk rock was before it was punk rock. Before it was alternative rock. Before it was grunge. It was all new wave. But you know, it wasn't just the Pacific Northwest. During that time, oh yeah, was the, like yeah, Nine Inch Nails coming on the scene. Where did they originate? Uh, I'm not really sure, but I know it wasn't in Seattle. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know Seattle didn't have much. I mean, they had your 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 run of the mill like you know bar bands and 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 small shows and and things of that nature. But Seattle wasn't really a a stark on the map you know no. musical empire that it became no. after after the Seattle Big Four shot the scene. You know Alice in Chains, Nirvana. Soundgarden, you know Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. That's uh, before they hit. I mean, they there was just a lot of. I mean, what else is there to do up there? You got a bunch of angsty kids evolving right. from the punk rock era that never really fully evolved, and it's, they're just sitting down there in their basement, just rocking out you because know? it's raining nonstop. Right, it's the most depressing place to live. Well, I'm sure, and being a teenager, but at the same time, the most beautiful places. Right, yeah. but I'm just saying in the sense of like you have these angsty teenagers and yeah. they're they're snowed into their homes. Right. What are they doing, man? They're yeah. down there thrashing around Jamming that six around. ring and slamming power cords like it's their mom's minivan. You oh know? yeah, and they don't want to. They don't want to be in the glam rock part of the thing. They don't want to be categorized into the punk rock because they're not punk rock really. Right. So right. that's why that new scene kind of just kind of emerged out of that yeah. area. And I feel like that when when that when the it evolved into the grunge, it even it even like changed their strumming patterns on their guitars how they how they played yeah it's just it's just much it would just seem to me that it was much different oh yeah you think oh yeah right yeah because i mean it's 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 its own genre right it's not just you know strumming the guitars but it's like the, the look you know right. the the where they came from and you know they, everybody was playing certain clubs and if you know and just everybody wanted to live in Seattle at the time. Yeah. Everybody wished to God that they were not living where they were oh, in the yeah. country. You know, if you look at like Macy's and J.C. Penney like clothing catalogs from that time, they had their own like in bright, bright, bold words. You know, you can have the grunge look for fifty bucks a T-shirt and all these kind of <laughs> yeah. things. You know, and they were buying these like fifty-dollar flannels, which in reality, <laughs> where that scene came from, is you know Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. That's a huge logging community. Yeah. They were going to thrift stores and buying flannels by the dozen for 16 cents exactly you yeah. know what i mean and, and now they were, they were just wearing what they had laying around the, <laughs> yeah the, the now long shops, right. right now long johns are cool and they're the thing and ripped jeans that didn't you know that you didn't buy ripped jeans your jeans got ripped right logging yeah. and you know you couldn't afford to buy new ones that's great you know that's so right. so going back to like i said uh you know nirvana and these these you know pearl jams and Soundgarden and alice in chains and mud honeys and screaming trees and all these kind of things the, this revolutionary Seattle quote unquote sound. Where where were you at when you first started hearing these guys? I was in New Jersey, right? Yeah, I was in you know on the East Coast. Yeah. So I mean, but everybody was buying the, the, the shit out of out of the tapes, you know. Oh, I'm sure. This is before CDs came out. Yeah. Well, it was, it was. You could probably buy either or, but vinyl, too. Yeah. Not many people were listening to vinyl. Everybody wanted CDs, and everybody. Really? Oh, are we kidding me? Vinyl was dead. Vinyl was like. You know, back in those days, everybody was like, vinyl was like an A-track to us. You know what I'm saying? Really? And then it wasn't until like the last 20 years where vinyl or, you know, came back and made a big comeback. Oh, now it's you huge. Know, now, of course, now it's huge. I mean, don't get me wrong. They still made vinyl back in those days. There was still, mm -hmm. you know, there was a, a shop that we used to go to 
um, for, for alternative um, music in, in New Jersey. And um, it was called Vintage Vinyl. That was the name of the record shop. And so they had all the stuff on vinyl. But I, I, and people I knew, they were all into the CDs and the tapes. It, really? it wasn't so much. It was about convenience in your car. That's, that's, ah, and you know, and back then they were saying, "Well, CD is the is the pristine way to listen to music. That's that's you know, you're not going to get any better than listening to it on a compact disc, right? You know, so that's really cool. What did you what did you uh, think of the of the quote unquote grunge scene when it first came out? Like, what did you and your I mean, circle of friends? How did you guys oh, man, adopt we were that blown sound? away? I mean, yeah. like, I just remember listening to to Soundgarden. You know, and it was like, I think Rusty Cage was like one of their first videos oh, yeah. on MTV. And I was like, damn, these guys are great, you know. And yeah. and then Alice in Chains came out with Man in the Box. And, and it was just like, every, it seemed like every week there was more and more of these, you know, great artists emerging out of, out of that area. And it was just like, okay, so it's not just Nirvana. Okay, there's there's oh, other yeah. guys, you know, that... that that other bands, different sounds, you know, are coming from that place. You know, what what makes that place so special? Well, they they definitely marketed at it, marketed it as like the the entertainment mecca of oh, the yeah. world at that time. And then they had the singles movie came out with with Matt oh, Dillon yeah. and <laughs> yeah. and you know little little uh, you know but cameos that sound, from Eddie Vedder. But and you can't you, that that soundtrack was. Oh, oh man, that soundtrack was so good. Spot on. It was great. Absolutely yeah. spot the on. The movie, not so much, but the soundtrack. Well, the movie was cheese. Yeah, but you know, it was still a good, you know, movie of the time is type type deal. And that's one of the things, also, like you like you said a little bit ago, all the other bands that came from Seattle um, that were playing in that time period. I kind of wanted to talk about them a little bit because I don't feel like they get the recognition that they deserve. Yeah, you know, yeah. bands like your your the Melvins. Yeah, Mud Honey, yeah. Fudge Tunnel, Fudge Tunnel, The Screaming Trees, Candlebox got a little bit of it, but not near. Mother Love Bone, Mother Love Bone. That's a big, big. Well, that one. was the that was the grandfather. That was like the kickoff. Oh yeah, I feel like that was the bridge between That's, the punk rock underground scene that yeah. emerged into this new wave, quote unquote, grunge movement. For sure, for sure. Yeah, you have Meat Puppets, Dinosaur yeah. Junior. Yeah, I mean. The list goes on. Lush, L Seven, Lush, and Lush was another chick the band. The Gits, all the I yeah, love yeah. the chick bands, like the hardcore, oh, yeah. kind of yeah. punk rocky new wave chick bands. The Gits, those are those were my favorites. But I just wanted to talk about them a little bit because and the Pixies, that's another oh, one. Yeah, the, yeah. I, I, my personal, one of my the personal Pixies favorites. and the Posies. That's right. The that's Posies right. as well. They were big mm-hmm. during that time period. Yeah, Frank Black, baby. Yeah, but see, there wouldn't be without these other bands. There wouldn't be a Nirvana. That's correct. Because Buzz Osborne of the Melvins, he actually introduced Kurt Cobain to Jack and Dino, the the record producer for Sub Pop Records, in order for them to record Bleach, yeah, which they recorded in about five hours. <laughs> Incredible, right? And that's to me, that's one of their best albums. I mean, Bleach oh is, yeah, Bleach to me is like when I want to go listen to something by Nirvana, I'm definitely going to go put on you know Love Buzz yeah. or you know School, yeah, one of those no. Classics, classics, you know, because yeah, Fred the Barber. Don't get me wrong, Mr. Mustache. Nevermind was a blockbuster oh. album, and you know that was that was insane when it when it came out. But looking yeah. back now, I'm like Bleach was where it was at. Well, that was the more raw my favorite word. Raw, raw, that raw my, dog in it. That was the more raw dog and music feel. Um, so let's talk about Nirvana a little bit. So you've got you've got Kurt Cobain. You've got what what was recorded with Bleach. You got their drummer Chad Chinning. This was before Dave Grohl. Um, and then you've got Chris Novoselic. So Chris Novoselic and Kurt Cobain met when Chris was about 18 or 19 years old. 
Kurt was about 17 in a little shithole blip fart on the map Aberdeen, Washington. Yes, Aberdeen, Washington. And they started progressively communicating through their absolute adoration for punk rock. And Kurt, that's a, that's a subject. Kurt Cobain is a subject for me on a, on a, very, on a very deeper level because this guy... This guy's past, even before Nirvana and all that, it's, it's the cliche mother abandonment issues cultivated just painful growth. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So he, he was a, you know, a product of Wendy O'Connor, his mom, and, and Don Cobain. And, in, and back in those times, I'm sure you probably know this as well, you know, but back in those times, the thing you know, the, the societal accepted thing to do was in those, especially in those communities. Like I feel this also, cause I'm from kind of a little country town. The thing you do is you get married, you have kids mm-hmm. young. You get on that logging truck, boy. Get on that logging truck, get out there and get gone. Yeah. Get, 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 get. Put the flannel on and go. That's right. Here's your lunch pail. And that's right. And that's what, you know, Wendy O'Connor was, was, was young and Don Cobain, they were, they were young when they had Kurt. And it was the, the, also the stereotypical, I did this too early, now I'm scared, and the only thing I know how to do is throw it away. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with Kurt, because he was, you know, if you watch interviews and documentaries about Kurt Cobain when he was a child, he was a very happy, started off very musically oriented, but he was a very happy kid, you know? He, but his mom, you know, and, and his dad got divorced when he was nine years old, mm-hmm. and uh, started cultivating a little bit of abandonment issues, because his mom... His mom couldn't handle him, and she she even voices that in interviews. She says things like, "Oh, well, I got married too young, and and I feel like I didn't experience life yet, you know, and all these different kind of things." Right. I'm like, man, that's bullshit. Because when you do that to a kid, especially one like that, a that, savant, that scars him, right? You know, and so he had, you know, from a very young age, he had those feelings of of abandonment. And, and that only cultivated to a much deeper, deeper issue going forward. But it also fueled what was correct going to come. And that's that's kind of the, the give and take with it is because you don't know if that was a great thing that happened to him. I mean, him yeah, because he could thing. end up just in prison for doing something stupid shit. And then you would never heard another peep out of Kurt Cobain and, and, and the world would have had, a, you know, the loss. Right. But it didn't happen that way, so that's good. No. But so, I'm sure for every Kurt Cobain, there is a hundred... A thousand, however you many, you know, oh, sure. other Kurt Cobains that could have been. You know, yeah, exactly. So Kurt moved around from family member to family member because his mom couldn't handle him. She basically cast him out because she wanted to go do the dating scene. She wanted that's, to go. That's crap. She was probably a drug addict. Dude, and, and it sucks too because I, I look and I listen to a lot of documentaries and interviews and read a lot of literature about his, his upbringing and she always just the way she presents it it's you know he was always such a happy kid and and i wasn't that bad i just threw my own son out in the cold and made him go (laughs) and all he wanted to do was you know live with me and have my love and affection and adoration but no i wouldn't give that to him because i'm a selfish sociopath right you know what i mean right and so anyway so he bounced around from family member to family member and he actually ended up living in one of the teachers um at his school's houses on their couch for a while. Interesting. Yeah, about a year. And so naturally, 
what do you think, you know, bouncing around from, you know, grandpa couldn't handle him, uncle couldn't handle him, dad couldn't handle him, mom couldn't handle him, you know, that, what does that cultivate? What is he, rebelling at this stage in his life? He's a, a teenager that listens to rock music. Oh, yeah. Well. No discipline, and, and, you know, basically they're like, well, I can't handle you, so let me just throw you out over here to this guy. So what about the other two guys there? Did they come from broken homes as well, or? Not really. Chris Novoselic, his, his, from what I understand, I don't know any of them personally, obviously, but from, from his, his uh, you know, interviews and things like that, he came from a very loving home, and so did Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl, he, he brings his mom up on The Tonight Show and absolutely adores his mother and has a, you know, had a good past. They were all, you know, rebellious punk rockers, but, but Kurt, well, when it came down to it, the lyrics came from Kurt. Oh yeah, he wrote he you wrote know, most and, everything. And, well, he wrote everything. The you know the raw guitars came from from his mind as well. Yeah, so I he, mean, he wrote everything. Yeah, he he uh, Dave Grohl actually talks a lot about that in the interviews as well. He talks about how Kurt never let him write anything, and when he <laughs> did, you know, he didn't ever present it to Kurt because I don't think Kurt would have, you know, shot it down. But he had a very, you know, focused mindset on what his sound was and what he wanted to play and. And, and, and all of that, I feel like he was just like a, like a cliche, not a cliche because it's not, it's not really common, but a savant. You know, mm-hmm. he just wanted to get his message heard. Right. You know? Well, see, Trent Reznor, it's the same thing. You know, with Nine Inch Nails, he, he, uh, he didn't want anybody to play anything that wasn't written by him in his band. Like, so when he went and did his live gigs and he had these, these band guys that came to fill in, you know, different things that he needed them to do on stage, mm-hmm. he didn't ever, ever want them to stray into like a, their own kind of a solo or anything like that. They, mm-hmm. had, he, they had to follow a strict regiment. And that's pretty much how Filter was born because the two guys that were in Filter, they, they pretty much were, they were in Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. and um, they, they couldn't take it anymore with, with, uh, with Trent. So they decided, you know, fuck it, we're, we're leaving the band and, and they went and started Filter. Probably shouldn't have done that, looking back. No, well, I mean... <laughs> Members come and go in Nine Inch Nails like the breeze, dude. I mean, right. you, you, you look at Trent wrong, get out. I'm done with you. Give, wow. give me a new bass player. <laughs> what a diva. He's a very much a hey, diva. But you know, there's also a certain amount of respect to that because you have, you know, you know what works. You know what works for you. And at the end of the day, when you go home, you know you're doing what you want to do. Right. That's if you, the if you If you look at the, uh, the credits on Pretty Hate Machine, it says, at the very last thing it says, it says, Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor. So, I mean, he is Nine Inch Nails. There, right. There's no band. It's, it's just him. Right. He went into the studio. Um, he, he, he worked there as a janitor just so he can do overnight recording by himself. And he used to order synthesizers from Japan, mm-hmm. all these new synthesizers that no one in the States has you know, really even heard of. And he would, he would you know, order them and pay for them. And he would bring them into the studio. And then he would you know, do the janitor stuff during the daytime at the mm-hmm. studio. And then he would do his, his nighttime gig. And then that's how Pretty Hate Machine came too. Yeah. You know, he, he was just doing it by himself. So, you know, when you put that much work and labor into something yourself, you, damn right, I don't want you yeah, to some, some dude on the street coming in here yeah. and going, oh, I'm going to come up with this cool part. No, you're not. <laughs> you're going to play what you're, <laughs> you're paid for, and then you're going yeah. to go home. It puts the lotion on the skin or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> yeah. It does what it's told. Exactly. <laughs> you know? But, yeah, and so so you, you even see it also with uh, when Kurt, he moved in with his first girlfriend, uh, her name Tracy Miranda. Not Courtney Love? 
No, no dude, that fucking gutter. I, I gotta be careful. She's super Sue happy. Not that she would ever find her way to our little rinky dink podcast here, but uh, yeah, didn't she just get pissed off at uh, Tommy Lee because he's she's like, oh, your movie sucked. The dirt sucked, and Tommy's like, uh, when's your movie coming out, Courtney? Oh, that's right, it's not. It'd be a very short movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm a gutter slut narcissist, freaking whole lead singer shit ass. Perfect name for her band, Hole. Hole. Because she's an asshole. Perfect, perfect name for her, anyway. Yeah. But uh, so he moved in with with Tracy Miranda, and and she provided to him kind of exactly what he needed. But it was almost like a like an unhealthy thing because she mommied him a lot. Yeah. You know what I mean? She mommied him a lot. She uh, okay, Kurt. Now you got to wake up. You got to go to work because, like you were saying earlier, he uh, he worked as a janitor at the time. Yeah, and that's where the whole old janitor thing came from in their first video, the yeah. first major video. Yeah. And uh, and so he stayed he stayed with her for a little while and and, and she she also comments a lot and saying that uh, all he would do is stay at home and make have you ever seen his sculpting? No, I actually, no. <laughs> it's pretty well. You you know the album Incestible. I saw last year. I saw all of his guitars and his uh, amplifiers and Dave's drums all in Seattle. They have it at, at this uh, really cool museum. They all, they have, really, they have all the Jimi Hendrix stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really the, it's the uh, um, museum of of uh, modern. Modern rock, pop, they call it the pop, pop. Yeah, it's a pop. Well, that, they were kind of a, a branch off of pop, not Nirvana as a whole, but that whole scene as a whole. They were they were what's called from the label sub pop, right? Hence that yeah. label. You know what I mean? Mm. So anyway, um, the MoMA. That's what it's called. The MoMA. The MoMA Museum of Modern. I'm into it. No, it's not. I'll, to, I'll yeah, look it up. Pop museum in Seattle. It's a huge place. They have a, a yeah. tor- they have a tornado made out of guitars. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a giant display. Like right when you walk in, and, and they have like must have like over like four thousand guitars just holy in, shit. formed into a tornado. It's killer. Almost like the Iron Throne. It's super killer. <laughs> uh, I mean, I walked in, I was like, oh my god, I'm home. Yeah, just music yeah. enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, so he he ended up finally leaving leaving Tracy. And that's when he started, you know, really focusing on his music career together with, you know, Chris and, and Chad Chenning. And back then they were playing in, uh, you know, garages. And for if they had two people that showed up to their house, you know, to watch him play, that was the shit. You right. know, that was that was yeah. the jam. And he it was funny, too. Like if you watch a lot of his performances, like, you know, it, I, I say performances, I use that term loosely, loosely. I mean, uh, more so his buddy with that giant camera recorder with a vhs tape in it recording mm-hmm. you know they were videotaping you know their their what they're playing and stuff and he would face the wall hmm. a lot like jim morrison would poetic or so or was he just nervous well both i'm sure but i think that's what jim morrison's deal was yeah too i'm sure um but it made for a very you know mysterious you know illusion illusion of, of, of who they were so. yeah but, uh, Which Maynard still does to this oh day. Oh my God! I don't even want to talk about him right now. It put me in a bad mood. Yeah, Tool was in the '90s, so yeah, they were, and they are obviously. A I saw those guys man. on the second stage in Lollapalooza '91. Wow! Yeah, Jesus. that was my first Lollapalooza. I think it was a pretty good one. That's too. like when Sober first came out and shit, right? Uh, no, they didn't come out until like a year or two later. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I believe that's that's when they came out. Huh. So like '91 was uh, Jane's Addiction, Susie and the Banshees, Living Color, Nine Inch Nails, Ice T, Ice T, Butthole Surfers, and the Rollins Band. God, that would have been so cool. But then '92 
was the year, man. I mean, that, it was such a great year. That Soundgarden, I, I huh? went and saw the Chili Peppers. I saw Ministry that year. Soundgarden, Jesus and Mary Chain. You know, uh, Pearl Jam was there. I touched Eddie Vedder's foot that day. He jumped off the, wow. the, 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 the you know the side of the stage yeah. where you can climb up. He yeah. jumped off, and I was like right in front. And, yeah, grab a hold of his and chop your hand off and put it in a. No, he was he was floating in the crowd like wow. you know, it was back when people still did that kind of stuff on off stage. Wow. But That's uh, bad. but yeah, it was killer, killer, killer. Um, Allison Chains, Lush was there. Lush, that was a pretty underrated band. They were good, man. I think so too. I like I like them a lot. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um. But yeah, so they, they started working on Bleach, and, and that's why I mentioned Buzz Osborne. You know, there wouldn't be, I don't know that there would be a Nirvana without Buzz Osborne or the Melvins, because Buzz Osborne is the one that called Jack and Dino, the record producer, and said, hey, you gotta check these guys out. Yeah. They're really good. You know, and so, you know, he's like, yeah, any, any friend of the Melvins is a friend of mine, naturally. Mm-hmm. And so they went in there and recorded Bleach, like I said, in like five hours, and the record producer was like, dude. This is good. Can I keep a copy? Like yeah. He was stoked, yeah. you know? And that, that was the kind of the birth of the birth of Nirvana there with uh with Bleach. But still though, like I don't know. It did it did it didn't have the, the drop that Nevermind did, obviously, or you know, No, but I'll tell you retrospect, like after Nevermind got released, Bleach the sales for that album skyrocketed, of course. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, it was everybody wanted their first album. You they know? wanted everything like, that said Nirvana. There's on another it. album. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every everybody wanted uh, anything that said, you know, Kurt Cobain on it, and anything that had his label. Yeah, and anybody in that live in that time, they they, they knew like that. Oh, this is awesome because the the, the the rawness and the you know just the yeah. you know just not it's not as polished as Nevermind, of course. Yeah, the two strings, the power chord mm-hmm. warfare. Like I, I I know how to play school, and that's just yeah. and just the way he took that and turned it into a great. I mean, it's not a masterpiece or anything, but it's just so melodic and I don't know. It's just something about it. It's hard to describe. I think you know, but then. Uh, but yeah. like I said, he started cultivating the issues after, like after, after Bleach, because then he started getting a lot of recognition. Oh yeah, you know, and and I don't want to, you know, encompass the whole band as Nirvana is only Kurt Cobain. No, but he was the main focus because he was the one. He had all the 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 controversy and the drama. It was almost like a modern day, you know, MTV well, what's drama. Your, what's your thoughts about him when when they did get super popular and? He, he started, people said that there was rumors of him saying, oh, well, I never wanted to be this famous, you know, I, I, I didn't want to, you know, it's, it's making me hurt inside and all this garbage. Well, I he think. Was spewing at the time, supposedly. I don't know how much garbage it is. I think that Kurt Cobain, his, his, his strong sense of abandonment issues and, and his not lack of having the tools to know how to cultivate healthy coping mechanisms drew him of course he wanted to get his message out there you know he wanted to be you know i want to get my message out there i want to play music but then again on the other side of the other side of the fence he also didn't want anybody you know he didn't he didn't want okay well you have to be at this interview at this time you know you have to be here at the studio at this time for our third take of the music he didn't want any of that and and i just did i just don't think he had any healthy coping mechanisms cultivated to you know to work through these things much like you know, Dave Grohl, who was just a happy-go-lucky guy throughout the entire thing, super yeah. optimistic, and you know how Dave Grohl is, just happy, happy, happy. Yeah, he's still that way. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and Chris Novoselic, he was just, he was, 
to me, it's it, it's almost like he should have been in bad religion. Like yeah. he would have been a perfect proponent for bad religion because he was very anti-government, very mm-hmm. you know focuses on government propaganda at the time. He he also is one of the most boisterous ones from the band because he you know you look at all the interviews he's photobombing everybody like Chris yeah. Nova, Chris Novoselic he's just all over the fucking place. I just remember he used to take that bass and throw it up and then he he got hit in the face of that Paramount show. Yeah, and blood starts oh, yeah, yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Like oh god. But also, I think I think the success scared the shit out of him, because yeah. he, he's been he, he was passed around all all over the place when he was a kid. So he had no real he had no real sense of acceptance. And you know, like I feel like almost almost all of it had to do with he didn't want to let anybody down. Right. You know what I'm saying? He didn't want the pressure of of having to let somebody down. And and now you have he's on the number one. He's the number one you know, everything all over the tabloids and they have, you know, outfits selling after him and just, it's just insanity. Halloween costumes. Halloween costumes. <laughs> action figures. When you have a Halloween costume made in your likeness, that's when you know you hit it big, right? Yeah, because, and also, he might have not felt worthy of people's adoration. Yeah, yeah. Or he could have felt like people were making fun of him. Which right. People, at the time, people, and still today, people still do. Oh, yeah. You know, well, they, they got hit up by Weird Al. Because he was, yeah, he, you know, yeah. he was going to do smells like teen. But see, spirit. to me, if that would happen to me, that would be more of an honor. Well, that's you know? what, how the, that's how Dave Grohl took it. Because Dave Grohl's like, "Wow, dude! Like, you know, dude. you make it when Weird Al is contacting yeah. you to to do, to, a, to do a, an impression song. of your song." You know what I mean? And and Kurt, he didn't. He was not about that. He he hated feeling stupid. Yeah. Like you know what I'm saying? And yeah. I think that goes back to like he didn't want the pressure of, of letting a group of people down. And if you read like into his suicide note, which is kind of controversial as well. Like mm. uh, was it him? Was it not? Did he write it? Did he write part of it? He uh, yeah, yeah. He was he wanted to get out. Smoking gun. That's, that's right. He wanted to get out of the music scene. He didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah. He wanted to keep playing his music and write poetry and stuff, but he didn't want to do it on this global scale. Yeah. And I feel that. He wanted to be more of a screaming trees or a mud honey. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want the fame and fortune that, you know, like a Metallica worthy right. group, a super group. Right. And then, you know, paired with all these abandonment issues and, you know, not wanting to let people down and these lack of tools to, to combat these and, and, and control healthy relationships and cultivate healthy relationships. Who do you put him with? Who does he fall in love with and get placed into, you know, his undying wife? husband relationship with but fucking Courtney Love well you know she was around <laughs> well yeah she was around with Billy Corgan and everybody else <laughs> yeah. in the in the scene at that yeah. particular time Michael Stipe <laughs> Michael Stipe yep absolutely and just I don't know I feel like one one small lyric out of his music really really stuck out to me in in the In Utero album the song Penny Royalty which also happens to be my favorite song of Nirvana's. He he describes himself as anemic royalty because that song is so satirical. Yeah, you know what I mean because yeah. it talks about Leonard Cohen afterworld, which Leonard Cohen was, I mean, one of the darkest motherfuckers ever, dude. Mm-hmm. He was all about you death. Ta- and you know, it takes everything. him a month to write one song sometimes. Really? Yeah, I read that. Good God, but mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, he he talks about you know his heroin addiction and taking cherry flavored and acids to get his stomach right and basically how much of a piece of shit he is and then he describes himself as being anemic royalty you know what i mean which is mm-hmm. uh, to me a symbolism of he's not worth it right you know what i mean he's not worth the adoration of all these people you know 
Yeah. And he hated, he also hated corporate magazines and like corporate interviews. He hated doing interviews. Well, you know, you can't sign up for the public spotlight and then just kind of like diss everybody. But did he really though? I mean, because he was... He signed the dotted line for well, that, those contracts right. for his multi-million dollar record contracts. Right, but I feel like he would have signed that for multi-$20 contract too. Because the guy had to eat. Mm. You know, he had to eat. He, You know, he had enough self-awareness and self-intelligence that he knew that See, he had when to do it came something. To, but when it came to making decisions, it wasn't just him. It was the three of them. They had to make them together. You know, I mean, he could have, you know, because Nirvana is a, is, a, is a band, however you want to look at it. I know Kurt was the one who had it all laid out, you know, in the yeah. beginning. But they had to make those kind of decisions. And I'm sure the other two guys didn't want to take a pay cut because Kurt, you know, was, was bent out of shape about corporate, you know, franchising. Yeah. You know, well, just like I said, it all goes back to I don't think he could handle it. Well, he didn't, obviously, supposedly. I don't know. Theory, I a, theoretically, <laughs> I have a lot of different theories because I've I've read a lot of different things about, especially the the uh, private investigator diaries that looked into Kurt and Courtney. You mm-hmm. know, because Kurt had this really really good friend that was in a really shitty gutter trash punk rock band at the time that was going nowhere barely playing in garages right that Mm -hmm. friend happened to buy Kurt the shotgun right Mm -hmm. and after all was said and done all of a sudden the band made it Hmm. his band that shitty little fucking Hmm. piece of shit band made it had hundreds of thousands of dollars I don't even remember the name of them but you can look into it a little bit and there's also this this podcast that I listened to about um, this famous famous uh, psychiatrist that used to essentially dupe his patients into transferring all of their riches and all of their funds to him. He would make them believe this shit. Yeah. And there it, it has a small segment in it about it because because he had a uh, six page letter from Courtney Love, right? Right. So. But- and all of a sudden, he made a lot of money off of that, too. And he's like, I'm not going to go into that a little bit because this would blow up like crazy. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of little avenues to look down. Yeah. And there's also the fact that the suicide note, Kurt Cobain's suicide note, was in two different, two different handwritings. And that's proven. Because the top section of it is theorized to be about him leaving the music industry. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's like... Yeah, I'm sorry to let you, all you guys down. You know, there, there's a double meaning. You can you can take it however you will. But then you still like, I'm, I'm done with this. I don't want to be in the spotlight anymore. This is awful. And then, you know, he's basically talking. He doesn't mention, like, anything going into where you would think somebody is suicidal. Up until, like, the last four or five lines, it's like, okay, I'm a piece of shit. I love you. Please remember me. I'm going to die now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it just so happens at the same exact time when he supposedly did himself in, Courtney Love was what? He, she was supposedly in a limo with Billy Corgan uh-huh. on the opposite side of the country. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's, right. that's kind of odd to, to me. Yeah, and in, the, in the, the private investigator looked in Courtney's backpack and found, like, school, schoolyard, elementary school level uh, handwriting practice sheets. That's... And the handwriting matched to the bottom of the letter. That murderous bitch. Mm, who, knows? Well, who knows? Who knows, man? Who, who knows what happened? You know, she's got to live with herself. I'm sure. I don't think she has much. I don't know. I don't yeah. think she has much I regret. 
in her life. I don't know. She's she seems kind of hollow to me and one one focused. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, so there's there's more to the Seattle sound than just Nirvana. Of course, they were you know, they were pinnacle. They yeah. were explosive. They were bringing an entire new era of music to the limelight. Yes. You know, they had yes. three good hit albums. Well, Bleach wasn't a huge hit, but it was a hit after the fact, yes. like you said. A retro hit. Yeah, right. Nevermind, In Utero, and then all of the remasters in Incesticide. Yes. All good albums. To me, Nevermind also, obviously, is much better than, well, not obviously, but I feel as though it's much better than In Utero. What do you think? Um... I don't know. I liked in your in your row. Did you? But I mean, I liked them both. Yeah. I, I really can't say one over the other. Actually, on, yeah. on that aspect of things. Could you imagine though having every single thing you do, every single thing you write, just just analyzed down to the T, like we're doing right now, like just the, how everybody did, how the critics did, how how you know society did, how these Rolling Stone magazine, how all of these. M- MTV, how every, everybody just analyzes every single move you make, everything you do. You can't go out and eat. You can't go to the grocery store. Well, you just, can't do anything. That's just part of being a celebrity in right. general. Right. I mean, <laughs> and, and that's pretty much every rock star. They want to know, how, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean when you say this? Why, why did you say this? So, like, they're constantly having to explain themselves because they're writing all these mystery lyrics, you know, like... A mulatto? What does that mean? Albino? I don't get it. A mulatto. You know, what are you talking about? Yeah. So talking about mosquitoes, mulattoes. You got to expect that when you make it to the big time. Yeah. You, you have to expect to. You know, you're gonna have an interview every freaking minute of your waking life. Right. Pretty much if you're in public. You know. Right. So. Yeah. Well, let's talk but, about a little bit about the other sounds that were going on in Seattle. Well, Smashing Pumpkins, then. Ugh. Oh, you come go ahead. On. No, no, no. Go ahead with your Billy Corgan. No, no, no. There's no. There's no really. Any backstory? Everybody knows Smashing Pumpkins. Everybody knows where they came from, yeah. what era they came from. Oh yeah, Smashing Pumpkins. I'm talking more the uh, the big Seattle Four, and and it's crazy how yeah. they they're into well, Alice in Chains. Oh yeah, Lane Staley, dude. That's he made favorite. it. He made it to his 40s, I think, right before he before he died. 30s, I think so. He's not in the 27 Club. No, obviously. No. But I think he was his 30s. Yeah, it's just crazy to me how how all of their intertwinings, their band members intertwined. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you like, you got like this begot this begot this. You know you have uh, Soundgarden begot Temple of the Dog be, or Mother Love Bone begot Temple of the Dog begot Pearl Jam. Just everybody, you know, thirty four years old. That's how old Lane was. And and I read a lot about him too. And like he used to be just a crazy shut in like the last ten years of his life. Oh yeah. Well, you know Mother Love Bone, they would have t- taken off to the the, oh. the, the the same status as everybody else easily if uh, you know he he hadn't have died. Andy Wood. Yes. Yeah, which was what Chris Cornell's roommate, right? Yes, they did a a little game they play used to play. Well, I think uh, for like a year straight, they were living together, and uh, they had like these little recorders, and so they were taking turns who could write the best song every single day. Yeah. So, and sometimes multiple songs per day. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that just goes to show you how much creativity. Was flowing through their their, their heads oh, at, yeah. at that time, you know, in their life. And I'm, I'm sure not, you know, you know, Chris Cornell doesn't have any creativity flowing right now, obviously. But oh, that's not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually coming out with a um, four LP series, collectors box set series, coming out soon. Nice. Soundgarden is it's a uh, it's available on their website and all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be really cool. Really, yeah. really neat colored LPs. I'm a sucker for marketing direction with things you like think that. Think in ten years they're going to have some. Uh, 
um, mock singer and go back on tour like everybody else does? I hope not, man, because so many people are doing that journey. Alice in Chains. I mean, dude, Alice in Chains. So back to that. Alice in Chains is one, is probably my favorite band from that time period. My favorite big band. Yeah, corporate band. I can agree that from from that Wait. time period. And I I don't know. I was talking to Kristen, my wife, about it many times. I feel like when you have a band like that where the front man dies, you should not be allowed to carry on that band. Yeah. But as under that name. I, I totally agree. You know what I mean? Because it's not Alice in Chains. No, because it's just the other guys in the band trying to get their bread and butter to pay the bills. Right. Right? Because Jerry Cantrell, he's a great backup singer, but and a great songwriter and well, guitar player. I personally think Jerry Cantrell was pretty much half the vocal sound of Alice in Chains. Yeah, but you notice, like, in every Alice in Chains song, you've got Lane, who's very boisterous and powerful. Right. And, and, well, yeah, he's a Frank guy. Right. And Jerry Cantrell, he's very, he's melodic. And right. he's a good singer, but he's very much quieter. And it sounds good in combination with Lane Staley, but I don't know if you've ever heard any of their new stuff with Jerry front, front line. Yeah. Uh, I listened to one of these, uh, one of their most I saw recent. I was, on, I was on side stage for those guys. Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, you know, I listened to one of their more recent performances at the Seattle Space Needle, where Jerry Cantrell was front manning, and it's just I was. I turned it off two songs in. I was like, God, yeah, well, bless this sucks. Do? This is shit ass. Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, so so mother, yeah. As, uh, but yeah. now the the Journey kid from the Philippines, that kid can freaking sing, dude. Yeah, he is great. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Um, but like I said, so it's just, it was all interesting to me how they all intertwined with each other because when, when Andy Wood and Mother Love Bone were hot on the scene and playing and up and coming, yeah. you know, Chris Cornell was in Soundgarden yeah. and he actually wasn't the original singer. The original singer of Soundgarden was a, was a Japanese fellow named Hiro Yamimoto. Well, I heard that Chris Cornell and Soundgarden, they got signed because one of the, the record label, um, guys were walking through one of the studios there in Seattle yeah. And he was just walking by the rooms, and he heard Chris Cornell singing, and he was just like, oh, my God, Dude. who is that? And how is that voice coming out of that guy's mouth right now? Yeah. Yeah. Still to this day, I don't think there's anybody that can match it, like, in that category. No. You know, I mean, nobody he's, sounds he's like him. He's a freaking powerhouse. Oh, my Lord, yeah. man. He's like an operatic, you know, 300-pound woman up there just crushing glasses. Like, he's just, I don't know, man. To me, he's just so incredibly unique and just, like you said, absolutely right. unrelentingly powerful right you know the back way- in those days because i mean i saw i saw him at a festival on the beach he was doing an acoustic performance mm-hmm. by himself and maybe it was just it could have just been an off day but his voice sounded like it was gone you know like oh i'm sure he'd done six you, tours previous to that when you, you know when you get as you grow older your voice does mm-hmm. start to go away well, yeah. Musically, everything does. Libido, yeah. Well, <laughs> voice, everything. Yeah. Hair starts turning white. Hair starts going away. Wish you could see Mark right now. No, He's it's bald. not happening He's to awful. me. It's not happening. No, it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they were roommates, and you know, Andy Wood was in Mother Love Bone. Chris yes. Cornell, obviously, yes. him, Kim Thale, Ben Shepard, Matt Cameron. They were all frontline in the sound garden movement and yeah. they were they were roommates and they're actually really great friends yeah really great friends so when andy andy wood od'd on heroin that was a huge blow to chris oh for god's sakes they were best friends absolutely it was a monumental blow and it was also the catalyst to a little band you guys pro- may or may not know some of the ogs will know at temple of the dog because mm-hmm. they i remember back 
back when I was younger, growing up, yeah. Temple of the Dog, they were on the radio all the time. Didn't somebody say that Temple of the Dog may reform without Chris Cornell? I didn't hear that. I thought I heard somebody mention Why that. Why do they do that, though? That's what I'm fucking talking about. I don't know, man. How are you going to do that? Who's going to sing Hunger Strike? Who? Meatloaf? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Fuck no, dude. I yeah. don't want to hear that shit. I don't... Let, let, a, let his legacy lev, live on. Let Lane Staley's legacy live on. You know... Chris he, Cornell. And Chris Cornell. That's what I mean. Like, guys like that. You, you don't see any uh, really, you know, prominent Nirvana. Nirvana never opened back up one because Dave Grohl went on to the... Khaki short wearing Crocs tucked in polo shirt dad rock band that you guys probably know as the Foo and also Pat Smear he's in there as well. I like Foo Man. Uh, Foo Man Chew? No, Foo Fighters. The Foo Fight is. They are right. It's the Foo Fighters. Good man. They're they're a good band. They're a good band and and you good can't, for nothing right? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't hate them because of Dave Grohl. I don't hate them because of Dave Grohl, Pat Smear, and Taylor Hawkins. Get over yourself, man. Dave Grohl is a talented musician. He I writes know. great music. I'm saying that. Everlong is one of the best songs ever written. Ooh. Mm. Mm. My pecker just moved a little bit in the hey, south direction. You have to it's agree. crawling inside right you now. You have to agree. I don't. Mm. I don't. I just, I think it's very, I expected more. But who the fuck from am I, Everlong? obviously? From Everlong? Just, or from Dave Grohl? From Dave Grohl, man. Oh, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. What did you want to hear? School? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I wanted to hear. I just, not the foo. Ah, uh, well. Not the foo. I wish Mike Moving was here. on. I wish our friend Mike Martinez was here. He'd be pissing all over my feet while I'm talking about this. But uh, <laughs> moving on, yes. I'll do it for him. No, don't do it. So, so <laughs> Temple of the Dog was a very cool band as, you know, it was, the, like I said, it was the catalyst between, you know, because of Andy Wood dying. Um, but it was, Temple of the Dog was, is, and was Pearl Jam before Pearl Jam. Yeah. And, and back, I remember back when we were talking about Slipknot a little bit, uh, how they used to practice at Joey Jordison's, you know, gas station that he worked out and all that kind of stuff. This is when Eddie Vedder got brought into the scene right. through Temple of the Dog because he had the backup, he sung backup vocals and the most prominent and well-known song that he did that on was Hunger Strike. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and which is badass. I thought he was great and I thought they made an absolutely fantastic and dynamic duo. Right. Those two guys together. And they also used to do that uh, in performances of each other's throughout the years. You know, Chris Cornell would make a surprise appearance at, at a Pearl Jam show and they would come out and sing Hunger Strike or vice versa. Yeah. Eddie Vedder would come out and, you know, because, uh, you know, even though they were, you know, miles apart most of the time, they they still, when they could make it to each other's shows, they still wanted to see their boys show. I mean, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you made it huge, I'd definitely be going to your shows. Exactly. Yeah. Front row seats, bro. Yeah, man. But they, they also shared, uh, shared a drummer, Pearl Jam and, and Soundgarden, Matt Cameron. Yes. So, but anyway, so Temple, Temple of the Dog, they hit the scene as a, you know, a semi super group. I don't know if they were actually a super group. Matt Cameron did audio slave drumming too, right? No, 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 no. Audio Slave was Rage Against the Machine with Chris Cornell frontmanning. I thought Pieces of Soundgarden were in there. I don't think so. No, no. That was, it was literally the drummer. Look it up. Got to look it up. Got to look it up now because I'm wrong. I'm going to feel like shit later and I'm right, we'll sleep. Continue on. Um, so you've got, you've got Temple the Dog. You know, you've got Stone Gossard, Mike McCready, Jeff Ament, Matt Cameron, Chris Cornell. And they come out with the self-titled Temple the Dog record. And that was, and more specifically, Say Hello to Heaven, that was written for Andy Wood. Um, that, was, that was a powerhouse, was, is it? No. Was, no, he Brad, wasn't. Brad Wilk. That's right. Yeah. See, bitch. Okay. All right. <laughs> All hell. 
So Temple of the Will. Dog was the bridge between Mother Love Bone and Pearl Jam. Yeah. Because Pearl Jam was Mother Love Bone before it was Temple of the Dog. And then Pearl Jam was Temple of the Dog. Uh, Eddie Vedder didn't Jam. even really know any of these guys. Well, no. He, he was a surfer from like middle California. Right. He's, he's like, okay, so I, I moved up here and, and now these dudes want me to come in and... And, and sing backup do, do a tribute uh, song for... for for some some guy that like, that they knew that you know just OD'd. Yeah. Okay, whatever. I, I guess I'm in the band, so I gotta do what I gotta do. Talk about some of the coolest music too. I love that whole album, start to finish, whole thing. Now, if he didn't do the Temple of the Dog, if, if Eddie Vedder said, "Nah, you guys can go do that stuff. I'll just hang back. I don't. I, I didn't know that guy. Oh, that would have been awful. That didn't happen that way. Community, but, man. but if it did happen that way, that it wouldn't even be half of the of, of what it's known for. Yeah, and today. you ever you ever you ever sit there and listen? To Eddie Vedder's interviews or anything like that. Holy shit. He is like the coolest dude. Yeah. He's just like he's just like one of those dudes. Not cool in the sense of like Dave Grohl donating to charities and just being a super sweet, hey, come up on stage and play this song with right. me. Just cool in the sense of like like uh, Sean Connery cool. Yeah. Did you ever see the Larry King with Sean Penn and uh-uh. Eddie Vedder? And the uh-uh. three of them are all just smoking cigarettes like chimneys uh-uh. the whole interview. It's the coolest. One of the best interviews. You should look it up on mm. YouTube if you have a chance. Yeah. It's a good. I'll definitely check that out. So that, that Temple of the Dog movement, that was beautiful. And then obviously born from the ashes of Temple of the Dog was Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam. Which everybody knows Pearl Jam. Everybody loves Pearl Jam. I love their, their um, album that they did for that movie, Into the Wild. Eddie Vedder did that whole, like almost that whole album, mm. the whole soundtrack. And it's fantastic, and it's just him solo, just Eddie Vedder. Yeah. Oh, my God, dude. I thought that was a fantastic album. I just love his voice. I love his flow. Like, I just love the way he composes music. Yeah. You know, he's another one with a very unique voice. Some people think it's cheesy. Some people think it's stupid. But I think it's beautiful in the sense that it's unique. Well, you know, each one of these bands from that era, they have their own uniqueness to their voice. And that's that's what set them apart from, you know, just a lot of the trash that was coming off the East Coast at the time. So. And yeah, so Pearl Jam, beautiful, love them. I've seen them once, back in 2014, yes. I think it was. Yes. I was real drunk. And Pearl I don't Jam, remember a I've lot seen of those it, guys probably like six times. Oh my lord, I yeah. am so envious. Yeah, well, it was uh, a lot, but the first time was 92, Lollapalooza. Oh, that's when with, 10 dropped. That's when the dude, yes, when, that's when he climbed the stage and jumped off and I grabbed a hold of his freaking back of his heel. Cleaner. Just because we were all <laughs> pushing him. Push, you know, trying to yeah, push yeah. him back onto the stage. He was kind of a little, like a monkey, like an acrobat during his shows. He'd oh, be climbing dude. rafters, going all sorts of nuts. He, yeah, and that's what he did that show. Yeah, it was cool to see. That's so cool. Yeah. Now he just kind of, when I saw him, he was just, he oh, kind of sat in a yeah. chair and drank two bottles of yeah. wine like he usually does. I guess I'll get my ukulele out. Yeah. <laughs> He's all about the uke life, bro. Oh, yeah. He's into the uke life. Yeah, he must have went to Hawaii. Uke, uke, uke it up. Times. Uke, uke. Anyway, so Alice in Chains. Ukulele. Ukulele. <laughs> Ukululu. Okay, mahalo. Let's go. Mahalo, motherfucker. Uh, so, I actually lived there for four years. Yeah. Hated it. Um, they hated you. I know. They did. They really did. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the right. Sorry, any Hawaiians listening. Yeah, I wasn't the right nationality. I was Willie White bread. I was Howley to the threshold, buddy. Yeah. So, let's go Let's go into Alice in Chains a little bit. Yes. Real quick. So, Lane Staley. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Favorite song. Go ahead. Oh gosh, there's so many to choose from, but I would have to say not just a favorite song, but the entire album of Dirt is probably oh, yeah. 
one of my all-time favorite Dirt's albums good. of Facelift all time. Is mine, I think. Really, Facelift. Dirt is definitely. You know, and talk about like he's a uh, Lane Staley and and Allison Chains. They're actually my theme song. I'm a big hunter, and uh, they're they're actually my theme song when I when I get up in one of my shooting houses. I'm the man in the box. I sit up there and hum that to myself I, I would, as I'm hunting I, I would deer. think you'd be up there going, "They came to snuff the rooster." <laughs> <laughs> they gonna get me, bro. They gonna get me. <laughs> no, my favorite my favorite thing that they've ever that Lane Staley's ever produced is "Bleed the Freak." Mm. I was gonna say "Bleed the Freak," dude. I wanna I wanna go full on Kyle song. Monster and punch drywall to that song. Yeah. God, he is just the vibrato in this dude's voice. Yeah. Oh yeah. And not only that, but then when they toned it down for their unplugged. <sighs> oh man. I mean, I personally think that their unplugged was a lot better than Nirvana's unplugged. Oh, I don't know. It's man. a tough one. I think Nirvana's unplugged was That's their icon- best performance. Oh, that was an iconic. Performance. Their best performance. Don't get me wrong, but I like Allison Chains. You know the the cardigan that he wore. Yeah. Sold for three hundred thousand dollars. And his daughter Frances Bean Cobain sold the guitar, or not sold, gave the guitar that he played in the unplugged performance to her boyfriend at the time. He didn't have a guitar to play. Yeah, so I gave him. This legendary, it's like giving the devil's guitar to somebody and they just grab it and yeah. like the, like an old Robert Johnson oh, yeah. tail. He probably at auctioned, the crossroad. He probably auctioned that shit off like three million. dollars No, well they had a big custody battle and she ended up getting it back. Oh, good. Their custody battle. They had a big legal battle over that and finally she. Good for her. Yeah, finally got it back. Um, but so so you were huge into Alice in Chains. Huge. Oh God, yeah. I mean, it was like that one summer when Dirt came out, especially. What were you doing that summer? You know, Explain that, to me the environment, on, the musical environment. My first when that came out. single, because back in the old days, it was this, the tapes came on these singles. You could buy the songs, you know. Yeah. One of my first singles was "Faith No More" is epic, yeah. and then also um, "The Man in the Box." Yeah. You know, single. That's beautiful, that was man. On my little boombox, my mm-hmm. sad fourteen-year-old bedroom. Your sad fourteen-year-old bedroom. Yeah. Well, you know. It was a sad era with the grunge period. And there are a lot of tissues, a lot of socks that you could have cut somebody with, (laughs) hiding under your bed, and your mom freaking out. Where is this? Don't worry about it. (laughs) Get out. Get out. You throw it like a Frisbee at her. Comes back. (laughs) Fucking nasty, crusty shit. But, uh, so anyway, yeah. What about Candlebox? How'd you feel about them? They were cool. You know, there was a lot of, like, you know, semi, like, soft core grunge, I guess you call them guys. You know, there was a lot of those guys around... You know, the Jim Blossoms were coming around. No, and no, no. Candlebox was there singing their little... How are you little... going to put the Gin Blossoms in the same category as Candlebox? Because it was Candle part Box? of the, at that era, though. I mean, I'm telling you. I mean, yeah. they're not, they weren't grunge, but they... The they're... Wallflowers. Exactly. Candlebox. No, the, the Wallflowers were a little bit later. They were, were they? They, they were like 91 headlight in it around. That was like 99, 98, <laughs> 6. <laughs> well, so. we'll get into that more next episode. Sonic Youth, though. Loved Sonic Youth. Oh, they're great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a band called All I was really into. All. Um, Quicksand. We used, to go, we used to go to Philadelphia to see Quicksand all the time. Those guys are phenomenal musicians. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, Silver Chair came on the scene. Not that They're I, good. Yeah. Yeah, I liked them. They were, they Stabbing were a westward. Two-hit yeah, wonder. They came out. Yeah. There's just so many, you know, the Flaming Lips. They're good. They're really good. And if you ever have a chance to go see a Flaming Lips live show, mm-hmm. do it. It's one of the best live shows you can possibly go, go see, yeah. in, in my opinion, you know. Yeah. I just... It's, it's really unfortunate. The Chili Peppers were that era, dude. Don't forget about that. Yeah. You it's know? really unfortunate to me to see 
these guys, you know, the Andy Woods, the Lane Staley's, the, you know, the Kurt Cobain's, the, the Chris Cornell's, you know, each, each one of them last a little bit longer in life uh, than the other, but they all had one common denominator, I feel like, and they were all in an intense amount of pain. And I used to think about these type of things in the sense of like, oh, you know, well, how could you possibly be depressed with having all that money? You made the decision, you know, it's really hard to, to frown in a Ferrari. Yeah. But you know, like, but like in the at the end of the day, man, they just that's not what they wanted, and and I feel like they all just. So then, just do what everybody else does, man. Do what Johnny Depp does. Move out to France and fucking buy a house in a villa and just hang out out there, away from people. Right. I'm glad we got to see uh, Chris Cornell two weeks before he died. Yeah, yeah, that was that was intense. That was very, very. That was a shocking to a, say the least. A bucket list item to say the least. And he sounded great. Speaking of shocking, Jane's Addiction. Don't forget about oh, that. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Jane's Addiction. Perry Fell started Lollapalooza. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Well, anyway, we only get an hour, so it uh, looks like we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, just wanted to talk a little bit about the quote-unquote dirty little word called grunge movement going on. A dirty little word called grunge. That's right. And as always, uh, thank you to our friend Mike Martinez for, for helping us out with some audio stuff, and we will see you guys next week. Later, guys.